Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And of course, today is no exception. I'm thrilled to be back once again with my friend and colleague, Dr. Tom Fabian. We're going to be talking about the microbiome and aging. And I know this is going to be hugely popular. We have uh, a lot of conversations on longevity these days on the Dr. KF platform and, and now to zero in on, on the microbiome is just exciting for me and I know will be exciting for you. So let me give you a little bit about Tom and we'll jump right in. He's a clinical laboratory consultant for Diagnostic Solutions Lab. He's a translational science expert, functional nutrition practitioner, educator, and speaker. He is a former biomedical research scientist with deep expertise in the role of human microbiome in health, chronic disease, and aging. Incidentally, he started um, his original training in the molecular biology of aging. So the microbiome component and the age and his training in, in, in aging science is just perfect for our conversation today. As a leading expert in translational applications of microbiome research in functional medicine and integrative health settings, Tom's primary focus is on providing educational resources and consulting services for practitioners and consulting and advisory services for clinical testing labs. On a limited basis, he also works with individual clients to improve gastrointestinal health and optimize health span. Dr. Fabian, welcome to New Frontiers. Well, thank you so much, Kara. It's great to be here today. I'm really excited about the topic. Yeah, we you. I, the questions are fabulous. We're going to dive in. I'm just so excited. And as always, you know, we're talking about um, the GI map, and you ha, you know, just so keep us focused on what we might be seeing on our on our labs and our laboratory data. Maybe additional testing you might consider, and of course, interventions as we move through these questions. Absolutely. Talk to me. Talk to me about what the microbiome looks like on the aging journey. That is an excellent question. So um, there've been quite a few studies looking at aging, uh, primarily originally in animal models. And now of course we have a better idea of what aging looks like with the microbiome in people. Um, and certainly we know there's a lot of connections with age related disease. So that's really kind of a difficult thing to untangle but of course we know they're related. So aging of course is the main risk factor for age-related chronic diseases. And it would make sense that a lot of those changes that we see and are actually really well characterized for a lot of these age-related conditions, we actually see similar changes with aging. Um, and it's of course gonna depend on sort of healthy aging versus uh, not so healthy aging, um, particularly when you look at centenarians. So I'm gonna kind of contrast the two Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to normal aging, uh, particularly when their aging is accompanied by chronic age-related diseases, yeah. we often see primarily a decrease in certain commensal bacteria. Uh, probably the best characterized would be the butyrate-producing bacteria. So that would be species that are in the Clostridia group, particularly. Um, you'll see that actually on GI map. It's listed in the normal bacteria under Clostridia class. Um, that's where the majority of butyrate producers reside. There are other short chain fatty acid producers in that group. <clears throat> um, one of the main ones actually is Fecalibacterium prosnitzi. Sure. See that also on GM map. Um, that is something that's been very well characterized 
in a long list of chronic diseases, autoimmune diseases, inflammatory diseases, allergic diseases, et cetera, um, and even aging itself. Uh, so that's certainly a factor. Um, and then the flip side is when you're looking at healthy aging, particularly those that live into their hundreds, so centenarians, yeah. we'll see changes where um, they tend to have an increase in these butyrate producers relative to non-centenarians. Um, Acromancia is another really important key yeah. species that we will see decreased with a lot of different conditions, uh, but also particularly in aging. We can talk about some of the interventions when we get to that topic that we know and are well-defined at this point that can help to boost some of those key bacteria. I'm going to just make a, a note to ensure that we circle back to butyrate producers and what you've seen. I know that um, interventions keep getting more and more sophisticated and effective. So I wanna hear what you have to say there. Um, that's fascinating <laughs> that centenarians actually show an increase. Uh, and we know that they're living a healthy lifestyle and their diet is um, a major factor here. And we, we can, we'll talk, we'll, we'll, I'll ping you on diet in a minute too, but let's talk a little bit about age-related inflammation, the whole inflammation of the microbiota. Right. So that's, that's a really big focus. When you look at sort of the hallmarks of aging, um, that's one of the best characterized. And of course, again, there's that link with chronic age-related disease as well, where they're often characterized by an inflammatory component chronic inflammation. Um, so when it comes to aging and the microbiome, of course, you're looking at several things there. Um, one of the things that has been noted in a bunch of different studies, again, aging and also age-related disease, is an increase in opportunistic type bacteria. Uh, primarily, you'll see those that are known in the uh, proteobacteria phylum, I'm not sure if everyone is familiar with that, but that's a fairly well-known group of bacteria that are largely known for producing something called LPS, which stands for lipopolysaccharide. So when we're talking about chronic inflammation, that tends to be one of the key features that is seen with aging is both an increase in this sort of chronic inflammation, uh, but also these uh, various types of LPS producing type bacteria. Um, of course, along with the inflammation, typically there's an increase in intestinal barrier dysfunction. Um, so that's a whole area that we can get into a bit more uh, in terms of the different components of the barrier. So we tend to think of leaky gut and zonulin as kind of being the key thing. Uh, and certainly when you look at zonulin on a test like GI map, uh, when that's elevated, that's certainly a sign that there's increased intestinal permeability. Uh, and that allows this LPS to get across Mm -hmm. the lining into circulation. Uh, but there's actually quite a bit more to the intestinal barrier. Um, and that's such a key part of how the microbiome really influences our health by interacting with the barrier in ways that involve more than just that uh, intestinal permeability component. I just want to say to our listeners that I will make sure there's a sample report um, in the show notes that you can click on and so that you can, you know, when Tom references a section on the GI map, you can just have it open there on your device uh, so that you can just scroll to it and see it. On the, on the GI map, I just wanna ask you, what, what are we gonna look to to get an idea that LPS is up? 
So primarily that would be uh, in the colon, one key sign of inflammation would be calprotectin. Okay, okay. So that's one of the key markers for increased inflammation, uh, primarily produced by neutrophils, a type of inflammatory immune cell. Um, that whole process can be stimulated by LPS. So LPS okay. is the best characterized. Um, but oftentimes we actually don't see calprotectin elevated. So the question is, is this when we see inflammatory dysbiosis, uh, and I'll talk about some of the key characters there in a moment. Um, the question is, is, is this sort of pre-inflammation that we, you know, we're starting to see dysbiosis happen and then a little bit further down the line when things are more out of balance that eventually inflammation will develop? Or, which uh, I think is becoming more clear as we're learning from new research, uh, many of those inflammatory bacteria also reside higher up. So they can reside in the small intestine, for example. Yeah. So those proteobacteria that I talked about that produce LPS, on average, the percent of the microbiome in the small intestine that is constituted by the proteobacteria is roughly around 25%. Wow. And it's highly variable from person to person. Whereas in the colon, it's usually more down in the range of 2 to 5%. So in terms of a percentage, there's a much bigger impact and presence, relatively speaking. Of course, the numbers overall are lower in the small intestine compared to the colon, but they can have a pretty big impact there because the small intestine is especially prone to uh, intestinal permeability and other factors uh, involved in a dysfunctional barrier. How might, we, how might we get insight into that using the GI map, or would you suggest um, other investigations? That's a good question. So as far as the inflammatory scenario, um, the key species, we have most of the, the ones that are well documented on GI map. So um, you would be looking at things like, uh, there's actually a couple in the normal bacteria section, actually. Uh, so even though they're considered normal bacteria, um, when they're elevated, that's been linked to inflammation. Uh, and okay. so you have uh, the ability to produce LPS. So the two in the normal bacteria section would be Escherichia. Mm -hmm. So that's actually the group that is primarily made up of E. coli. Mm -hmm. E. coli is really well characterized, has a lot of beneficial effects, but again, in excess, it can be a problem. Yeah. And then there's a Terabacter. Um, then on page three of GI map, so that's the opportunistic uh, sections. Yeah. We have organisms like Pseudomonas that's been characterized uh, primarily as producing inflammation in the small intestine. So it's actually okay. thought to be active in the colon. Um, and so the small intestine, we're learning more and more about that now. It was kind of later in the game because it was so easy to research what's going on in the colon based on stool samples. Um, and we can still get some insights from stool. Um, mm -hmm. Detailed studies are really involving molecular methods that are looking at um, direct sampling in the small intestine. Uh, so in the small intestine, we can see uh, E. coli as well. We can see Klebsiella, uh, Citrobacter, Pseudomonas, uh, and also Proteus. Um, and then those okay. all can be present in the colon. So there's sort of this idea that, and I'll just elaborate on this sort of side note here that you know, in the colon, when things are out of balance, we tend to think of it as dysbiosis, you know, kind of the generic term. But typically when we're thinking of the small intestine, the main term you hear about is quote SIBO. Right. Um, and there are different studies that kind of show different types of microbes may be overgrown. 
In SIBO, some of the recent research indicates Klebsiella and E. coli can be among them. Um, but really the, the key with the small intestine is it's really not turning out to be that different in that basic concept of balance from the colon. So we prefer the term small intestinal dysbiosis because it's really not one thing. Mm -hmm. The increase in Klebsiella, you could have a candida overgrowth, for example. Um, so that's really where you, you can get into the details with these molecular tests like GI map. Um, and one of the other key advantages, I'll just sort of mention this as a side note as well, is when you're looking at using stool samples, because that's the most accessible sample type to look at the gut, you need to use methods that can detect these low abundance organisms and also be able to quantitate them. And I'll just yeah. mention two reasons real quick. Um, so when you're looking at these organisms and you'll see the numbers on GI map, if you kind of you know, scrutinize those numbers, most of the pathogens and opportunists are at much lower abundance than the commensals. Um, so they're actually easily missed right. by certain methods like the typical metagenomic sequencing, for example, where they just can't sequence cost effectively down to the depth to really detect a lot of these organisms that are present at very low levels. Whereas that's really where PCR shines, particularly qPCR, which is quantitative. And then just one other quick thing related to that is when it comes to qPCR, and that's actually looking at what's called absolute quantitation, uh, which is something you really want to have when you're trying to connect the levels of a particular organism uh, or even just a pattern of organisms with clinical markers such as calprotectin, et cetera, and also with symptoms. So there are a growing number of studies now showing that the absolute methods, and they're really calling for a shift towards these absolute methods, uh, and moving away from this sort of relative abundance characterization that we've seen so much of with right. sequencing type methods. Awesome. Okay, so those are some real um, pearls that we can use when we're analyzing. We see a drop in the butyrate producers and then a rise in some normal flora, um, E. coli and, and enterobacter, and then we can see some of the, some of the, a rise in some of the opportunists and we wanna have having it quantified can help us really distinguish and see more clearly. I just want to ask you, like, do you, you know, you're, the reference limit for calprotectin is 173, less than one, 173 microgram per gram. It, do, do, do you, are you concerned when you see it uh, within normal limits, but on the higher side? I mean, how do you think about, how do you use that reference limit when you're interpreting results? Um, absolutely. That can be a sign of low-grade inflammation. Um, again, as always, you're taking into account, you know, how the patient's presenting symptoms, sure. the overall picture on GI map. Um, so we often do see when there's an increase in these inflammatory type microbes. Again, primarily you'll see those under the opportunistic sections. But if you start to see those popping up, you're more likely to see calprotectin above the what we consider roughly the optimal range, which is sort of 50 and below. Okay, good. Once you get above 100, yep. that does seem to be pretty consistent with individuals having um, a greater likelihood of chronic conditions and also uh, signs on the test of this type of dysbiosis. Awesome. So 50 and below folks, <laughs> write it down if you if you, if you can, or make a note on your PDF. Um, 
and I just want to underscore again, and I may be doing this just for myself, but in these healthy centenarians, they've got loads of butyrate producers. So we don't want to stop at, you know, necessarily seeing them fall within normal limits. We really want to be actively stoking butyrate producers um, as a anti-aging intervention. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely several sort of aspects to that. Um, you know, one is related to just how central gut health is to overall health. And it turns out that butyrate is absolutely critical for a healthy colon. So just a couple examples is, uh, and this is probably pretty well known uh, by this point that uh, butyrate makes up somewhere in the range of 70 to 80% of the energy intake um, or, or sort mm -hmm. of the substrate for the colon cells. Um, so it's not only basically needed for healthy cells to line the colon, um, but also at the same time, that actually helps create an anaerobic environment. It gets into a little bit of a technical discussion, but essentially when those cells, the colon cells are burning the butyrate, that's fatty acid oxidation. That's the process that's used. And you can tell by the word oxidation, it's using up oxygen. Mm -hmm. So that's a major factor and actually helping to keep the colon anaerobic. And when you consider that 95% of the organisms in the colon are anaerobic, um, that's a key reason for not having healthy, healthy microbiome. But that really translates more systemically um, because another key uh, really beneficial aspect of butyrate is the fact that it can promote the development of these uh, what are called T regulatory cells. So you have your more inflammatory cells that are part of that, say, for example, the, the Th1 response, um, also the Th17 responses um, are characterized as generally more pro-inflammatory, whereas the Treg cells help to keep those in check, keep them from being excessive. So it's pretty almost elementary that you can imagine that when there's a lack of Tregs, when you're lacking butyrate, that can have a negative impact on that immune balance. And that can be yet another contributor to uh, this imbalance that we see with aging. I mean, actually one other really interesting thing I want to add to that that just came out, I think in the last year or so, um, is that another factor that was found in centenarians is that their microbiome tends to produce a particular metabolite from the microbiome, um, in addition to butyrate, uh, that actually also helps promote these Treg cells. So they seem to really be skewed from what we can tell towards a microbiome that really promotes this persistent healthy gut, healthy microbiome balance, and also healthy immune balance. Yeah, tolerance. You know, I just got back from the IFM um, immune module teaching. I was in Seattle and we did a live stream, but I was there with some of the faculty and um, you know, I focus on allergic disease and it's all about just this epic breakdown in tolerance and there's an, you know, oral tolerance and, you know, on down the line and, um, you know, to the dendritic cells, you know, not being, they're doing the little intestinal sampling and bringing it back and, and Tregs are not turned on. And um, it's just fascinating to me, the loss of tolerance has its tentacles in, the chronic diseases of aging, aging itself, autoimmunity, allergic disease, et cetera. Um, so I just, I really want to underscore that, like probably from almost any vantage we might be coming at for, you know, treating gut imbalances and wanting to restore health, we're going to be influencing 
favorably um, the gut as it ages. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's, I'm glad you you kind of called that out because that is something I'd like to emphasize that um, whether we're just thinking of sort of, you know, general gut health and how that applies to other things besides aging, or if we're looking at aging itself, um, we're always kind of trained, I think, initially to focus on the bad guys. And that's, that's sort of what that first R in the 4R, 5R program is focused on. Right. Identifying these pathogens, identifying these opportunists, getting rid of them and everything's supposed to be you know, pretty good at that point. But um, it's turning out that actually this whole scenario of the beneficial microbes and how they connect to promoting um, these T regulatory cells and also just immune tolerance in general all along the GI tract. So we're not talking about just the colon and butyrate. We're mm-hmm. to learn more about how this plays out in all the different components. And of course, other mucosa areas like the lung, et cetera, and even the skin. Yes. Um, so whenever you have anything out of balance in any of those areas, um, not only can that affect things locally, but that can affect things more systemically. Um, plus, the other thing to understand is that it's an active process and it's dynamic, meaning that it's not something that just set, you know, from birth, for example, or set by right. genetics. You have right. to continue to maintain that tolerance or you potentially can lose the tolerance. So yes, that really underscores that, you know, this continue to promote these healthy lifestyle factors that promote these processes because they are dynamic and they can change. Yes. So we always look at, you know, our early life experience where we vaginally deliver breastfed, et cetera. Did we, you know, play outside in the dirt or was there excessive hygiene? Were we exposed to drugs and all of, you know, uh, having a healthy foundation is of course essential. And I think that influences tolerance across the lifespan, but yeah, if, if we're introduced to a cocktail of medications, if we require, you know, acid blocking therapy, if our diet is poor, et cetera, tolerance breaks down. I mean, honestly, we, again, just thinking about the fact that I was just at the immune module and focusing on allergic disease, we see adult onset anaphylaxis, which is like the classic loss of tolerance. Um, more it's on the rise and i and it and and people were asking me what are the interventions and it's um this is perfect so we're talking about keeping the you know supporting the gut in the aging journey but you know this is this is perfect for a conversation on allergy and 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 this translates to autoimmunity and on um i, I would love that unless you had one more question i was going to add on to that um, yeah add on to it and then well, i so- want to ask you about what you think, I know we're saving interventions, but I just, I'll circle back to butyrate at some other time. I have it written down. So we'll talk about that. <laughs> Go ahead, make your, yeah, say your. But while you're on the topic of allergies, um, it turns out that the small intestine is a really key area for that. So recent research, and, and you may have already come across this recently as well, that um, tolerance to food antigens Um, mostly happens in the small intestine. So of course, as I mentioned, these different compartments are important for sort of different aspects of immune health. Of course, in the small intestine is where we're most exposed to these food antigens. Um, And that's the leaky gut component and dysbiosis in the small intestine could be part of the problem. Um, So that's really you know, kind of a, a key focus now, as you mentioned in allergic disease, how do you promote tolerance? Uh, in autoimmune diseases, again, how do we promote tolerance? And again, a lot of that for autoimmune diseases thought to also happen in the small intestine. So really we're looking at a lot of these key players 
Um, they're a little bit different in the small intestine, so we don't really have those butyrate producers so much there. Um, we have other beneficial bacteria that produce lactate and acetate, for example, and those play really important roles in promoting a healthy barrier in the small intestine. Of course, also glutamine, that's something that we use a lot therapeutically, but that's really where it's so important to think beyond just sort of, you know, we, we kind of have always thought of the gut as sort of the gut, you know, it's butyrate and there's gut support, but uh, gut support really uh, can be a potentially a bit more targeted as we're learning more. Um, and the small intestine is really just a very key site for that, um, which takes me a little bit to um, something I think that is not really yet well known, but one of the brush border enzymes in the small intestine, mm-hmm. this is intestinal alkaline phosphatase. Okay. Has several really, really important roles in maintaining the health of the small intestine and also preventing leaky gut. So it actually has a role in promoting the expression of these tight junction proteins. Um, one of its main actions is actually to detoxify LPS. Oh, interesting. LPS producers are there in the small intestine in a higher concentration typically. And some people can have very high concentrations, 70 to 80% of their microbiome in the small intestine in some patients can actually be these proteobacteria. Um, and likely they don't have a healthy intestinal lining there and they're not producing as much of this intestinal alkaline phosphatase. Um, so that's thought to be absolutely critical to a healthy small intestine. Um, and some studies show that that enzyme decreases the toxicity or the ability of LPS to produce stimulate inflammation by at least a hundredfold. Um, so again, you know, when we're thinking about the overall health of the gut, um, and fortunately we do know ways to, to help uh, stimulate the production of and the activity of this alkaline phosphatase, uh, which we can talk about as well. That is so interesting. Wow. Um... I, well, so how do we, so how do we think about, how do we think about supporting it? Now people are going to want a little bit of action uh, to, to address what you've just talked about with the upper gut. Again, I mean, are we going to look at, you know, lactate producers? Uh, Is that going to be like, how are we going to use the GI map to inform our intervention for the upper GI with regard to, um, you know, thinking about permeability in the upper GI and, you know, how are we going to support intestinal alkaline phosphatase? So as far as the dysbiosis in the small intestine, we actually have a pretty good idea of that based on a bunch of recent research. So um, one of the key players, as I mentioned, in the small intestine is pseudomonas. Yep. Um, that has been shown. So it's an LPS producer. Uh, it can also produce other things. Uh, there's another group of pro-inflammatory molecules that some of these bad guys can produce called proteases mm-hmm. uh, that can basically stimulate inflammation. So uh, pseudomonas is one. So if you see pseudomonas elevated, uh, we often see that elevated in patients that have, in particular, food reactions, food sensitivities, uh, oh, especially uh, well-characterizing gluten reactivity. Okay. Uh, it's been linked to IBS, for example. Uh, Staph aureus is another one. Um, it actually can produce, so it's not part of that proteobacteria group. It doesn't produce LPS, but actually it produces something called super antigens. Mm-hmm. Uh, play a big role in allergies and other mm-hmm. uh, conditions, um, but that's another one that we often see elevated 
in patients that have these upper GI related issues, uh, including food sensitivities, food allergies, et cetera. Um, as I mentioned, E. coli can be upper GI. Um, that one is upper or lower. So, you know, you can't just really tell from the stool test itself where that is, uh, but the approaches that you would use to try to bring them down would still be similar. Um, mm -hmm. Klebsiella is often, probably most often overgrown in the small intestine compared to the colon, um, particularly if you don't see calprotectin elevated. Uh, Citrobacter would be another one that's kind of key uh, in terms of small intestinal dysbiosis. Uh, Candida, of course, um, that's often overgrown in the small intestine. And you'll often see those all elevated together. And that's usually really significant dysbiosis, of course. Um, so antimicrobials certainly are a major go-to in those cases uh, because they really can be quite effective. Um, of course, you get into the weeds sometimes when there's biofilms um, and they're not quite as responsive. But fortunately, a lot of the, the things that we use every day, probiotics, polyphenols, actually have antibiofilm activity. Um, so there may be additional ways to address those. Um, but one key factor that actually is thought to kind of be overlooked, it's starting to be looked at more in research, is reduced digestion. Yes. Um, so that's what seems to be driving a lot of this overgrowth and dysbiosis. And in fact, one study uh, showed that one of the major factors driving dysbiosis uh, in their study was actually, in terms of correlating markers, was low elastase. So evidence of reduced pancreatic function. Mm -hmm. um, so lots of research has shown that low um, uh, stomach acid production, so hypochlorhydria, low pancreatic function, um, those of course can lead to a decrease in digestion. Uh, so then you have more undigested foods around to fuel these various types of microbes. Um, where you get into trouble yes. is these microbes in the small intestine then cause inflammation, then that starts to affect the brush border enzymes. And that's just gonna add fuel to this fire Right. And you throw on top of that um, eating foods that you're reacting to, we also know that that reactivity mostly happens in the small intestine. So um, really the small intestine is kind of emerging as a hotspot for a lot of these problems that then can lead to downstream issues in the colon. Yeah. So it's, it's really connecting a lot of dots, but I think we're there with the research now and also what we see clinically. Uh, we see these patterns all the time on GI. Right. Yeah, it's just, of course, you know, of course we're aging faster in this country, you know, with the myriad imbalances that are happening uh, in our gut, you know, so profoundly. I mean, we, the, the patients that we see these days really can, can have tough guts and we see the, some of the patterns you're, you're talking about routinely. Um, all right, so, so let's steer back. Oh, I, I wanna just let folks know, we ha I have an amazing webinar. Tom gave it a, a great webinar um, on our platform and we'll link to that. And you talked extensively about upper gut imbalances. Um, and you talked a lot about histamine intolerance and what that looks like and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and what those patterns. And so it's a really fabulous webinar. So we'll link to that so that you can access, um, you know, a deeper learning um, from Tom there. All right, so let's circle back to aging uh, and the microbiome and let's talk about uh, epigenetic influences. It, what do, you, what do you know about the microbiome playing a role here? It's a great question. So I would say where the microbiome has been best studied uh, in terms of 
epigenetic influences would be more on something called um, histone acetylation. So mm -hmm. kind of in the big picture, epigenetics typically involves uh, DNA methylation, uh, which is one major aspect of epigenetic control. So those are direct modifications to the DNA itself. Um, but then also, of course, DNA is, exists essentially kind of in this condensed form wrapped around these proteins, almost like a school that are called histones. Um, so when they're basically wrapped around it, they're not accessible in order to be expressed. So they have to be relatively sort of unwrapped, so to speak, or unschooled. Um, and that's really where these epigenetic modifications that affect histones uh, can be a big part of the, the picture. Um, so a lot of the things that we typically use in our day-to-day -day practice, uh, particularly polyphenols, um, are actually also known as, many of them are known as histone, it's kind of a mouthful, histone deacetylase inhibitors, but that okay. basically means that they can affect epigenetics at that particular level. Um, so a lot of these have been linked to their effects in promoting um, anti-inflammatory effects, antioxidant effects, for example, um, even specific things like sort of influencing that production of Tregs. So we do know that polyphenols can actually influence that process as well. Um, but directly, we know that there are microbiome components, uh, particularly butyrate, um, that also is known as, uh, again, another one of these histone deacetylase inhibitors. Um, so certainly there's a lot of examples there that uh, research showing that um, at least in animal models, that when they're given some of these natural um, inhibitors, that that can increase lifespan, um, may also decrease various uh, disease risks as well. Um, so when it comes to methylation, um, it's a little bit of a similar scenario in terms of the polyphenols. We know that polyphenols potentially can also influence the methyl transferases. And I think that's something that you had mentioned in your recent publication, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's where we were focusing. Yeah, looking at the methylome. Mm -hmm. Right, so part of what the microbiome can do is actually um, help with activating these polyphenols. Um, so many of them are not really well absorbed. Uh, they're not necessarily bioactive until they get all the way down into the colon and the microbes start interacting with them, modifying them, and then many of them are able to be better absorbed at that point. Uh, and then also, and this also happens kind of in the latter part of the small intestine. Um, and then also they can interact, these polyphenols can interact with various receptors in the mucosa. Uh, probably one of the best characterized is something called AHR, which stands for aryl hydrocarbon receptor. Um, again, another major role in promoting healthy gut uh, also can promote uh, these Treg cells as well. Um, and that's particularly where the, the cruciferous vegetable components come into play like sulforaphane. So, um, again, you know, there's, there's many ways in which the microbiome can influence this process. And probably the last one I'll mention is sort of more the obvious one when it comes to methylation, uh, which is the influence of the microbiome on vitamins, yeah. vitamins. Um, so we know that, you know, various microbes can produce uh, different types of B vitamins. Um, and so the overall balance of the microbiome can influence in part what's available. Um, they also use these B vitamins, of course, for their own metabolism. So it gets a little complicated in terms of predicting 
um, you know, exactly what that influence is going to be. But over time, we're starting to see this fall out in studies. Um, so just to give one quick example, uh, recent studies showed that uh, in Parkinson's disease, that oftentimes what, what is seen when it comes to the microbiome is a reduction in Prevotella. So that's one, generally one of the beneficial species in most contexts. Um, uh -huh. It's known to be a producer of folate, for example. Um, and folate deficiency and higher homocysteine um, is a combination that's often seen in Parkinson's. Uh, so again, that can be one specific type of age-related um, and especially disease-related uh, scenario where you have a decrease in this beneficial group uh -huh. and therefore a decrease in the folate that's available for methylation. It was pretty neat in our, so I would, I'm glad that you mentioned vitamins. It's sort of, it's something we take for granted. And yet there, our gut can, you know, can really make a, a multivitamin. I mean, it's quite extraordinary, the healthy gut. Um, so I'm glad that you brought that up. We, it, in our study, it was really kind of cool that without providing, you know, B vitamins, we increased circulating methylfolate in our participants significantly, you know, so it can... Um, all right. So what else do I want to talk about? So uh, yes, histone deacetylase is definitely something that I've been reading about in the literature. I think it's such a robust area of investigation where the microbiome have their fingers deeply into the, you know, hundred plus epigenetic marks that, you know, that regulate gene expression in us, you know, their hosts. And I think as science moves forward, we'll see more and more, uh, evidence and or the mechanisms of action for how they're regulating gene expression. I mean, just don't you expect that to be true? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it just seems like there's a fire hose of information coming out. So it's challenging to keep up with it at all. But um, it's pretty amazing that we see all these different mechanisms for how the microbiome is involved. Um, on the one hand, it's actually not all that surprising given that they're kind of at that key juncture between the environments, you know, essentially, you yeah. but, um, you know, they're right there literally physically between the food components and our physiology. So it makes a lot yeah. of sense that they're influenced by the food. They modify food components and then that therefore modifies our physiology. So I think it's, you know, it's really, we're still kind of at the early stages of all this and, and we're going to be learning a lot more. Yes. Yes. And I know, isn't, I think that there are some, well, you and I were talking about this, just um, stool-based biological age clocks. And I'm assuming that that would be done by looking at some of the um, bacteria that you outlined earlier, looking at very, various ratios of those seen in a healthy or unhealthy centenarian gut. I mean, can you speak to that at all, what, if you know anything? Um, I can't speak to that in detail. I am aware that there was a, um, one of the aging clocks. I don't know if it was exclusively focused on the microbiome or if that was just one component. Um, and unfortunately, I'm not familiar with the details of that. It's been quite a while since I came across that. Um, but certainly it is one key factor. I mean, it does change fairly predictably with age in some of these sort of broader ways, like the reduced butyrate producers, increased sure. Et cetera. Yes. So I think it is one key component to potentially include uh, to make sure that these clocks are as sort of broadly applicable as possible. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, I think it's interesting and, and something to kind of keep an eye towards. I don't know if it's quite there for prime time yet, but yeah, it is interesting. Well, let's talk about the microbiome and gut brain axis and, you know, and what role it might play in aging. Absolutely. Yeah. So again, it's, it's a lot of it comes back to some of what we've already talked about. So there are several ways that we know at this point uh, for how there's this sort of two-way communication between the gut and brain. So if we're thinking sort of gut to brain, part of that happens through immune influences. Um, and certainly we know that a lot of the chronic conditions, neurodegenerative conditions involve, at least as one of the components, um, neuroinflammation. Um, so there's a growing amount of evidence that for some diseases that may originate or at least uh, in part be mediated by gut inflammation. Yeah, absolutely. So certainly that would be a component. Um, there's direct connections, of course, um, particularly through the vagus nerve. So, you know, the vagus nerve has a lot of sensory endings detecting what's going on in the gut and then conveying that information to the brain. So if it's detecting that things are not right, um, then that can certainly uh, influence things in the brain. Um, and then there's, there's also some connections specifically with the hypothalamus, which is kind of often regarded as one of the key pacemakers or regulators of aging. So, you know, we're talking about the gut brain connection more generally, um, really a key connection is that um, influence between the gut and the hypothalamus. And again, these things go both ways. We know of course the brain regulates many of the functions in the GI tract. Um, and so when that balance starts to, to go out of balance, that can become a bit of a vicious cycle. Um, and so that's thought to be one of the key ways in which the microbiome actually can influence aging for good or for bad. So certainly mm -hmm. if you're promoting gut health, then you are probably very likely influencing brain health at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then just back to your earlier point, talking about Parkinson's disease. I mean, there's, I think there's a good evidence in the literature also around Alzheimer's and the microbiome as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, uh, evidence for a lack of some of those key beneficial bacteria in particular, mm -hmm. then also potentially some overgrowth of these opportunists may be involved as well. Let's talk about diet. And you know, you've already mentioned polyphenols. And so we can kind of move on or, or, or expand from that. I mean, these, you know, the polyphenol world is extraordinary. And, you know, these, these, these phytochemicals, we're still identifying, we're still characterizing, I think, most of them, right? I think much of what we what we know is, uh, is, is to about, I, or I should say, we know maybe 30% of these extraordinary compounds that we're eating when we're eating a whole foods, healthy, you know, plant-centered diet, but, and they interact with the microbiome and they combine and they're changed and absorbed and just, they do all sorts of extraordinary stuff. So we've got the polyphenols, talk about other nutrients, but then also talk about um, fasting or, you know, time-restricted eating. Um, so there's actually quite a bit of, research coming out on that as well, and I think is really fascinating. So just kind of looking, starting off at the changes with the microbiome that we see that are both related to aging um, and then mm -hmm. also related to fasting. So I mentioned that there are some key species that tend to decrease on average with aging. Again, the butyrate producers, acromantia, those really do kind of come up time and time again. Um, 
you know, as far as being important for a wide range of diseases, also for aging. Well, it turns out that a lot of these um, studies that have looked at anything from calorie restriction to various types of intermittent fasting, um, anything from alternate day fasting, time-restricted eating, et cetera. Um, and then other sort of similar approaches like a ketogenic diet, mm -hmm. et cetera, that there's actually a fair amount of overlap in some of the, the beneficial effects on the microbiome here. So acromancia tends to be one of the ones that we see uh, increased by these interventions time and again. Wow. Um, and then also lactobacillus, bifidobacterium. Again, we always think of those as pretty beneficial. Uh, you'll see a lot of those mentioned as being increased by these different interventions. Um, and so just a couple of sides there is, particularly with lactobacillus, a lot of research shows that actually they're one of the key groups that helps to mediate these beneficial effects of polyphenols. Um, so that could be one of the key ways in which lactobacillus is involved Interesting. in promoting healthy aging. Um, so that, that's really kind of just the big picture. Um, a lot of it is thought to involve uh, promoting these short chain fatty acid producing bacteria. So again, you know, again, comes down to butyrate, uh, but some of the other short chain fatty acids, of course, also have important effects like propionate. Um, I mentioned that, uh, you know, they can have epigenetic effects, especially the histone deacetylase mechanism. We know that propionate is one of them. Um, and then we didn't really talk much about the, the bile acids, but again, many of these bacteria can actually modify bile acids in ways that have some beneficial effects. Um, and that's often, uh, those products are often something that's correlated with aging. Um. So the keto diet, the keto diet gets a bad rap as far as the microbiome. It's almost like fasting the microbiome. And, it, and, and I think chronic keto diet, or perhaps, I mean, you know what? It's hard to talk about the keto diet really as a single entity because we can interpret it very differently. You could have a keto diet that was, you know, based on just eating McDonald's hamburgers without the buns, or, you know, you could have a really healthy very plant forward keto diet. Um, so yeah. it, what, what are you, so are your thoughts in general that, that, that a long-term keto diet can be healthy on the microbiome or are there any caveats around that? I would say there's definitely some caveats around that. Um, and that's mostly based on some of these emerging studies. Um, I think I saw one that came out recently indicating that there may be some negative effects when it comes to brain health long-term from the ketogenic diet. Um, so, you know, there are some concerns there. I don't know. It, it could be something that it turns out to be a good short term, shorter term intervention for some certain scenarios, um, or that we find ways to mitigate some of these downsides, as you mentioned, right. certainly the way it's implemented, um, would make a, a major difference. Um, actually, if you're I mean, if you're doing high saturates, aren't you going to stimulate LPS production and absorption? Right. Yeah, exactly. Simply. Um, so you're going to carry a lot more LPS across that intestinal barrier, um, potentially really promote a lot more endotoxemia. Um, yeah. And there's only so much you can do as far as mitigating that. So if it's a, you know, and it's, it's going to depend on the individual's microbiome, obviously. So again, that's where sort of the individual differences may come into play. Some people can potentially tolerate a ketogenic diet better if they don't have as many of those LPS type bacteria. 
Right, right, right. Or we could do, I was just talking to somebody about this recently who started a sort of a self-administered keto diet and got his lipids back and asked me about them and they're terrible, but he's, he was doing a sort of a classic Atkins, high saturated fat, butter, okay. you know, you know, you know, lots of dairy. It's sort of the, the classic 1980s Atkins diet, it sounded like to me. Um, and, and it didn't seem like he responded that well to it. Um, but then there's, I mean, like we, I wrote in the, the, the methylation diet and lifestyle, the, the program that we researched and that is now in the book, Younger You, is um, keto leaning. You know, we think it probably nudges people into ketosis with a little time restricted eating and there's some exercise, but it's, you know, it's higher fat, but it's very plant forward. So it's a decidedly different interpretation. Um, and, and, and it puts people, I, our participants probably got into, you know, a, a modest ketosis, mild to moderate ketosis with, you know, just based on their tr- drop in significant drop in triglycerides. So um, likely, I mean, I just, we didn't follow stool testing with them, but I, I, I can't imagine it being, you know, generating excessive LPS or inflammation. Do you have thoughts right. on that? Yeah, I definitely think that's the key. Um, probably in the microbiome field, the, the sort of macronutrient scenario that's been best studied as far as extremes would be high protein diets. So kind of by analogy, we know that there, you know, there are some benefits, um, particularly for, um, you know, metabolic health for some patients losing weight yes. with a protein diet. Um, again, may not be a great example long-term and in some of the extremes now would be, for example, the carnivore diet. Right. We talk about, uh, microbiome results, GMAP results that look really bad. Um, ironically, these patients felt better. Yes. Do their symptoms before. And most likely that's because they had some issues with carbohydrates. So by limiting yeah. carbohydrates, they were able to improve their symptoms. But the problem is, and that's really where you know, I think testing is so important because you can feel better, but you still want to know what the numbers look like and see, are they trending in the wrong direction, which maybe yeah. is not a good long-term solution. And you need to figure out a way to, to modify that. Um, but studies do show that actually a fair amount of the negative effects of having too much protein, which from the gut microbiome standpoint, that can promote pathogens and opportunists. And a lot of these products that we think of as negative, like hydrogen sulfide and ammonia, uh, mm-hmm. biogenic amines, histamine, putrescine, another mm-hmm. nice sounding compounds like that, cadaverine, <laughs> et cetera. Yeah. That have negative effects that that actually if you were to give two people the same amount of protein, but one person received a lot more fiber and polyphenols, that actually goes a long way towards helping to compensate for those effects. Um, So I would suspect that the same is true for the ketogenic diet, that there's a way to do that that's much more sustainable. Yes, that's right. I absolutely agree with you. And we could always pulse it, but I I mean, at point taken here that we want to, you know, pay attention to what's happening in the gut. Um, any, like any additional, uh, well, I want to circle back to the centenarians. I mean, we certainly know from blue zone, um, publications, they're eating this really, you know, beautiful whole food plant forward, but not totally plant forward, not, not exclusively vegan, 
diet. They're getting a lot of legumes in there. Um, but anything on the centenarian gut to, uh, to add to this conversation? I, just, I think it's really cool that they happen to have a lot of butyrate producers. That's such an easy thing for us to look at and to, um, you know, your influence. Exactly. Yeah. So I would say a um, couple things there. One is, um, so in addition to the butyrate producers, they also have higher levels of acromantia. Um, and then also Kristen, one, at least one study showed Kristen Sinella, which isn't as well known, but that's often linked to metabolic health, um, just like the butyrate producers and acromantia are. So I think a lot of it speaks to the importance of metabolic health and the factors that we know already that can promote uh, metabolic health. Um, so I think that's really kind of one of the key take-homes when it comes to the centenarian studies. Um, I think that, you know, we kind of think of that also in terms of these blue zones um, that may be also what you're referring to, or these parts of the world where we know that um, generally the average lifespan is longer. They do tend to eat more whole foods, less processed foods. Um, depending on the regions, you know, there's just a lot more plant intake, et cetera, plastics mm -hmm. or Mediterranean diet. Yeah. Um, I think that really goes a long way towards understanding some of these key underlying factors comes down to metabolic health. Right. That's a really good point. I mean, and I'll, and I'll throw out that the Mediterranean diet has been studied with regard to DNA methylation, biological aging. So DNA MH, as they say, and there is some, there are definitely favorable changes with a Mediterranean diet on the DNA methylome. Exactly. Um, and and in some populations, it may reverse biological aging. So that's, you know, that's validating and, and pretty cool. All right. So any last little words of wisdom um, that we didn't get to? Any other, any other thoughts on, on what we might want to think about with GIMAP? I know we covered a lot of it. Um, or any therapeutic interventions that, uh, that you want to leave us with? Absolutely. Yeah. So I would say when it comes to, maybe I'll address a little bit of both. So when it comes to GMAP in stool testing in the context of healthy aging, um, of course, it's sort of hard to totally separate that from age-related diseases. Uh, we're all kind of leaning one way or the other in terms of susceptibility uh, to one set of conditions or other. Um, so there is going to be an element of sort of that uh, personalization um, you know, that you want to take into account. But in general, when you're looking at GI map, um, we have a lot of resources helping clinicians understand the key patterns. Um, those come down to lack of beneficial bacteria. So that's really an important aspect as we just talked about for both aging and age-related diseases. Uh, so you want to learn to recognize that pattern and learn the key players on GI map like acromantia, fecal bacterium, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, also, the inflammatory pattern, as we talked about, can be a very important pattern. Uh, may not always see that with signs of uh, inflammation on the test. Um, and again, that can be due to either it's sort of an earlier stage, hasn't really caused significant inflammation yet, uh, maybe more reflective of some upper GI type issues. Um, again, we have lots of resources to help clinicians sort of parse that out. Uh, but really, the most common one overall is the poor digestion pattern. So that's really what we often bring everything back to is a lot of this starts with the basics, just making sure that you're digesting well and that you're you know, chewing your food thoroughly and trying not to be so stressed while you're eating. 
which has a big um, impact on the microbiome. Um, and then also I would kind of add from a therapeutic standpoint. So certainly you can get into a lot of the specifics and I think that's you know, important at a certain level to really understand what sorts of factors would you need to use to address a particular pattern. Um, but I think something that's been, that was really well addressed in your study is that multifactorial approach. Um, that's really, I think, kind of the key take home is uh, I wouldn't look at it as just identifying a key pathogen opportunist on GMAP and using an antimicrobial. You really need to look at the big picture and also understand from the test, what is it telling you about the big picture? And then sort of mesh that information with your overall patient um, assessment. Uh, and really the, the you know, things like sleep, circadian rhythms, stress, um, are just as important as the supplements and the diet. Um, and we first get a lot of questions on, on supplements and diet um, and fewer questions on these other factors, but, but we always like to make sure we emphasize that those are a key part of the picture. You've got to have all of those sort of boxes checked off, uh, particularly if your goal is healthy aging. And if that's the focus, when can we see some of these changes? Like what would be, you know, you got your baseline test and maybe you're following with a DNA methylation age test, which is, you know, which is kind of fun to do. And when might you follow up with a stool test to see if you're hitting some of the marks with regard to uh, supporting healthy aging in the microbiome? It's a great question. So generally it's gonna depend a little bit of course on the individual picture, but, and also sort of what you're doing. If you see some dysbiosis where you're going to be implementing a protocol, and usually those protocols go 30 days, maybe up to 60 days. Um, after you're making a big intervention like that in the microbiome, you want to give it some time to kind of re-equilibrate. Um, so typically the research suggests, and our clinical experience is consistent with at least 30 days, ideally okay. kind of 30 days after you're kind of finished with your protocol. Um, if you're just implementing a new program, so you're kind of introducing a new diet, so it's something meant to be long-term, um, really, again, that same time frame, waiting about 30 to 60 days uh, after you introduce that program, you really should start to see some significant changes. Um, and of course, it depends on just how well your approach is, is really addressing these underlying uh, factors. Um, but you really should start to see significant changes in that 30 to 60 day time frame. That is really pretty quick. I have to say it would be so fun to look at the younger you protocol, what we used in our study and throw a, get a stool was, test, you know, baseline. Absolutely. I was just <laughs> yeah. the same thing. I would love to see what their before and after looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Program. It would be, that would be, I, th th no doubt it's changed. I mean, we, we did some blood biomarkers, but the methylome, DNA methylation changed, you know, profoundly in our study population. And yeah, it, I, I'm, I, I have no doubt that gut was playing a big role in, in helping that along. Well, Tom, as usual, it's really great to learn from you. I just love how uh, up on the literature you set, you stay with whatever, you know, with whatever we're talking about. So thanks for bringing that to New Frontiers. And I'm sure we'll be talking again. Well, thank you so much. And it was a great pleasure speaking with you today.